You know, I'm really glad they invented the game musical chairs because it makes that transition easier. Because like when the music stops, you know to go find a seat. You know what I mean? It's like conditioned in you since childhood. Um, glad you're here this morning. We are, again, in our series in Revelation. Finally, we're getting towards the end. Um, we're in chapters 15 and 16. If you have your Bibles, you can kind of turn there. That's where we'll be uh, as we kind of finish up the book over the next several weeks and look at what the Lord um, has kind of laid out and what He's been doing in our midst. Uh, our series, of course, is called Blessed, with a question mark, because again, we talk about this each week, but most people, when they think of the book of Revelation, they don't think of blessing. They think of, you know, wrath and terribleness, which actually today we're going to talk about. Uh, we'll see in just a moment. But, uh, you know, again, the Apostle John wrote this book to be a blessing. First chapter, he said, hey, the one who reads this is blessed, and those who hear and keep it are blessed. And then in the last chapter, he says, blessed is he who heeds this book. So like the, the book is supposed to be a book for us as believers to find the hope and blessing, blessing meaning happiness, that we're not going to find anywhere else in this world. It's the culmination of realizing there isn't going to be any lasting happiness, blessing here. They all pass away. But there will be a lasting blessing forever in Christ. And someday he'll bring a permanent blessing on the earth and bring us back to that. And we've been looking at that week after week after week. This is the last book in the Bible. It's the culmination of everything to say, do you want true happiness? Then you've got to understand what all this is about. And then we looked at the fact that Jesus told his disciples, they asked him, hey, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? Is, is now the time when you're going to come and make things right? And that's what most of us are curious about, right? We all want... God, to make things right in our life. We want him to, to fix things in our life. And the disciples were no different. They were saying, is now the time when your kingdom's going to come and now everything will be made right and we'll know what's right and wrong and we won't have to struggle with it. It'll be absolutely clear all the time. And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or periods the Father set by his own authority, but you will receive power to be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. In other words, I'm going to give you the power to go out and be my witnesses and tell people the truth about who I am as God and the purpose of life and what real happiness is and the reality of my full character, both justice, love, wrath, mercy, all of it. He said, I'm going to actually empower you to understand the scriptures. I'm going to empower you to be able to go out and do that, but you're not going to know the times or periods because... It's not for you to know. They're set by the Father, not by you. And you don't need to know. We don't need to know because we already have our marching orders. We have enough to know without having to worry about what we don't know. Okay? And so that's kind of what we've been looking at. Over the last several weeks, we've looked through this. The last few weeks, you can see some of these that are on here. <clears throat> Remember, the book starts out with, hey, listen, repent. It goes through... Some devastating seals that are broken and plagues and terrible things that happen and then trumpets that are blown, more terrible things and plagues that happen. And God sends witnesses, two witnesses, and the world kills them. And he sends signs and he sends last week, we looked at, or two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that there's going to be these beasts and this dragon and all this wickedness that's happening. And that, yes, Revelation is both symbolic and literal and we don't know which is which half the time when you read the book. But if you're in any relationship, you know that half the time you don't even know when your spouse is being symbolic or literal, 
right? And you take it as symbolism, and they're like, no, I meant that literally. And you're like, oh, sorry, I missed that one, right? It happens all the time in relationships. It's no different with the Lord, and he wants us to say, will you trust me? As I give you these pictures and these images, and you have to remember, John is writing. It's really difficult for him. He's seeing these pictures. He's seeing these visions, and he doesn't know what to write down. You see the same that we've looked at in Ezekiel and Daniel. When you go back and read the prophet Ezekiel, the prophet Daniel, and when they prophesied about what would happen at the end times, and it looks very, very similar, if not identical, to what we read here in Revelation, There's these descriptions of what they're seeing, and they literally don't know how to describe it. They're like, well, I saw this big wheel spinning around, you know, and it was colorful. I mean, how do you describe, like, we don't know how to describe those things. Again, it's no different for you. It's very difficult for you sometimes to know how to describe to other people something that you've been through or experienced in its fullness. It's very difficult, but we're called to. Just like John was called to write as much as he could and give us a picture or a glimpse. And we have enough information, here's the key, we have enough information to make a decision of whether we believe God is who he says he is and whether John really was right or wrong. We have, we have more than enough information. It's backed up by Ezekiel, Daniel, and the other prophets. And then last week, we looked at the fact that it's going to take perseverance. That God calls us to persevere in the midst of of everything that happens. Don't just be pragmatic. And whatever works means God's in it. That's exactly what we looked at a couple of weeks ago that the enemy is going to use to trap people. If it works, do it. That is not biblical. God is a God of miracles. That means, hey, something happened and it didn't work right. It worked beyond right. What do we do with that? Oh, miracle. Oh, and by the way, the enemy can do signs and wonders too. The Bible says even Satan himself knows how to heal people. You know how Satan heals people? It's real simple. He just says no more demon on them for now. Let them get better. No more problems for them right now. I'll stay away from them. I won't send any more viruses in their house because I'm using them for my purposes. See, we don't think this way anymore. We don't even talk this way anymore. We're so surfacey about everything in the church and so surfacey about, oh, just lovey Jesus, that we won't dig in, which is why Revelation is such a foreign book to us and why we just argue about it instead of find blessing and happiness in it. And so this week, as we dive in, I'm going to give you three words. These three words are repeated over and over in chapter 15 and 16. I'm not making this title up to make some point. I'm not making this title up to drive something home that you better listen. I'm telling you, these three words are used over and over and over again in the passage. So I'm telling you, these are the words of the title of the message. And they're hard words. The three words are simple. Wrath and repentance. Is it right? Wrath and repentance. Right? Are we good with wrath and right like is is that the right thing to have wrath and to repent I mean I thought we were good I thought everybody's going to heaven we're you know nobody's really that bad how could how could a loving God be wrathful how could a loving God think he's so right that he can tell people what to do and if they don't do it he can hold them accountable He says, you need to do what I tell you to do. You need to turn from the way you're going and turn my way. Who does he think he is? Is he right? How do I know he's right? 
See, this is the question of the age. And when you come to the end of the book of Revelation, this is, this is on full display. We're going to see in these next two chapters as God opens up and shows and pours out these bowls. So we've gone through again, seals, trumpets that have been announced that pour out judgments. Now he's pouring out full bowls of wrath. At this point, you're going to see that God has nothing left to give but to show that I'm right and you're wrong. It's sad. This this. This, these two passages, while they should truly encourage us, they should also break our hearts at the same time. You see, we don't even think that talking about God's wrath or talking about and calling people to repentance is even right anymore. We think it's egregious, egregious to say things that are mean. Have you read your Bible? God is mean to me all the time, it seems like, when I read my Bible. He's very mean. He says things about me I don't like. I read it, and I'm like, I don't know. That's not me. I know, huh, huh. And God's like, yeah, that's you. We need to have a conversation. Well, I don't like that. I know. I don't like it either. At least we agree on that. Would you like to change? <laughs> Would you like some help? I'm going to put some people in your life. They're going to help you. I didn't ask for help. I know, but I love you. So I'm going to put some people in your life to help you because I love you. See, that's our God. And as you get to the end of this book, it's like God is doing everything he can. He has done everything he could for thousands and thousands of years to get people's attention. And it's finally done. There's no more compromise. There's no more peace treaties. There's no more nothing. It's just wrath. Listen, you know this is true in our world. It's happened over and over again where countries and nations will try to make peace without having to pay the price and then we end up having to pay the price. It happens over and over in humanity and we look at that and go, oh, that's unfortunate. But we don't look deeper and ask, why is that? What is it in us that will just constantly make compromise after compromise after compromise until it gets so bad that we just want to bring the hammer down on somebody? And you've been there. That's why our divorce rate's through the roof. Because we don't know how to do grace and truth anymore. It's all grace, grace, everything's fine, and then boom, I'm done with you. Or it's just truth, 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 and then I'm going to go out and find somebody who will give me the grace I want. It's just a mess. And God in this last chapter is laying it out, and it should break your heart. Why is it, let me ask you this, why is it on the repentance side, why, is it so, why do we consider it so egregious that if someone, if another army were to truly surrender and the soldiers were to willingly surrender, why do we find it egregious that we can't just slaughter them and then starve them out and let them die in concentration camps? Why is that so egregious? Throughout all of human history, that's the way it was done. It's only been in the last hundred years that we actually have this kind of mercy for our enemies and like these treaties and rules that we have to treat them right. Do you realize that? For most of human history, the victor gets the spoils and I annihilate you. So, so where did this idea that people have actually value? They're not to be used. That humans have actual value beyond just the physical matter you're made up of. That didn't come from a worldly mindset. That came from Scripture where God says every man was created in the image of God. Sometimes nations have to rise up. We're going to celebrate this Friday what? What's this Friday? 
Veterans Day. It's Brian's favorite day. He finds a way to get three free meals that day as a veteran. Every year. He takes full advantage. I love it. Because he always tells us about his experiences and where he went and tried and what he did. It's great. Veterans Day. It's a day in which people said, we'll lay down our life so that other people can have life. We'll, we'll stand behind the authority that's called us to go and we'll give our lives. Now you can argue whether those wars were right or wrong, whether they should have fought or not. You can argue all day long. But there are these principles that we genuinely know that wrath is necessary. If you don't think wrath, wrath is ever necessary, then never call 911 if you need a police officer. Call them for the ambulance, don't call them for the police officer. Because the reason you call for 911 and a police officer to show up is because you want somebody with a gun with bigger wrath than the person that's getting you or getting your neighbor or getting the person you're seeing hurt. And you're calling in a higher authority to bring their wrath over that person's wrath and they will win. And so you dial the number. See, we have no problem with that in Christianity, thinking, oh yeah, I got to call, help that person. But then when it comes to anything spiritual, anything that we have to talk about that's like real and like their soul may perish forever, it's like, oh, we got to be very careful how we say things like that. I don't ever want to dial 911 on someone when I'm calling, talking to them. Listen, when we look at this passage, it's hard. But it is right. So we dive in. Revelation 15.1. Then I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign. We looked at this at the end of the message last week leading in. In heaven. So he's seeing a sign in heaven. This is not a sign on earth that's visible to the earth. This is a sign in heaven. John has been taken to heaven. He's looking around heaven. He sees this sign. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. This is it. This is it. It says, for them... For with them, God's wrath will be completed. Thing one, God has wrath. Your God, my God, has wrath. It's not unrighteous wrath. It's a righteous, loving wrath that says, either you repent, either you surrender, or I'm going to have to use my weapon. What you're doing is evil. What you're doing is wrong. And me and my armies are willing to die and pay the price to show you that you are unrighteous and evil. Sound familiar? Again, we have no problem sitting in freedom and sitting in this room and just enjoying ourselves without thinking about how we got here and the price that was paid so you can sit here. We just talked about a people group. We just prayed for our brothers and sisters around the world that are being slaughtered right now. Churches being blown up. Daughters being taken away from their Christian families to go into sex trades all around the world right now because they didn't have people who were willing to pay the wrath on their behalf. We did. God raises up and tears down nations, not me. I'm not saying we're any better than any nation. I, I don't know why God's raised up the United States. I don't know why it continues. We got an election coming up, and I'm like, who do I vote for? We're the righteous people. I'm going, to have to, I'm going to have to try to make a good decision. I've tried to do my homework. I've tried to look. I've tried to figure out these guys. I've talked to many of them personally. Written them letters and notes. I've done everything. I, I still don't. I'm like, I don't. It's like, which do you want? Liver or onions? 
Neither. I'd like a cake. <laughs> no cake. Liver onions. <laughs> and that's the reality of the world that we live in. And most Christians are just trying to find ways to ignore this reality. He goes on. He said, I also saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. This is like fire water, right? And then he says, and those who had won the victory over the beast, his image and the number of his name. Those are three things. The beast, his image, and the number of his names. In other words, these are the people that refuse to bow to pragmatism. They, they refuse to bow to pragmatism. I'm not going to do, I'm not going to say the beast is the one who's going to save us. I'm not going to say that. I got to live with the beast. It's here, right? There he is, but I don't have to bow to him. Just like we're going to have to live with whoever gets elected, but I'm not going to, I don't have to bow to him. I just got to live with it. And then he goes on and he says, his image. I don't have to jump around, drive around with his bumper sticker on the back of my car. I don't. That's not what I'm shooting for. And the number of his name. I really don't care what numbers he produces for me. Because that's pretty much how we vote in America. Is this going to be good for my pocketbook and is it going to produce the numbers I want? Doesn't matter if it's righteous. To... Nope. As long as it pays off. And then it goes on and he says this. They were standing on the sea of glass with harps from God and they sang the song of God's servant Moses and the song of the Lamb. This is so beautiful. When you understand the victory, when you understand fully God has wrath and you fully understand that he gives you the chance and gives everyone the opportunity to repent and you understand that that is a right thing, that is the thing God said is right and beautiful and that he has made the way for all of that, that he is fully wrathful, he is fully just and he's provided a way for us not to have to experience his wrath and justice, then our proper response is to sing. It's all over scripture God's people are a singing group of people. The longest book in the Bible is songs, psalms. The longest chapter in the longest book of the Bible is Psalm 119. And it's all about what? The Word of God. It's singing the Word the whole time. The whole chapter singing the Word of God. And how great the Word of God is. I didn't write the book. God did. He said, here's the longest book. And Psalms is one of those beautiful books that draws us into the reality of the need for wrath. Have you read the Psalms? And the number of times, I've said this multiple weeks, where the writers of the Psalms are writing and you're like, oh, that is awful that they would put that there. Like, like terrible that God, I pray, fire comes down from heaven and annihilates all my enemies. Thank you, I love you, you're awesome. That's like Psalms. There you go. Can I pray that? Yeah. Lord, knock their teeth out so they might change. I, have you prayed ever like that? No, because we won't even touch it in our culture. That's unloving. That's unkind. You can't pray those things. Well, then you're going to be real uncomfortable with the book of Revelation when it shows up. I don't know which side you're going to be on when this stuff starts going down. Now, most people believe that the church is gone by this point. We'll see that in a minute. That God's done with the world. That our opportunity to obey Acts 1, 7, and 8 and to warn people of what's coming is over. 
that they're dead and they're going to be gone forever. Tormented forever under the wrath of God. And for us just to ignore this and pretend like, oh, that's just Old Testament, that's, listen, we have to take the whole of who God is, all of his love, all of his compassion. When he revealed himself to Moses, he didn't say, I am wrathful and terrible and you better be scared of me. He put Moses in the cleft of a rock because he said, if you get near my presence, you'll die. That's how incredibly holy and perfect I am. So hide in the rock, I'll pass by and a little light will shine on you, right? It'll make you glow. Moses came down off the mountain. He was literally glowing, okay, from the presence of God. And when he passes by, he says, I am merciful, compassionate, and loving. That's how he described himself to Moses. Like Moses is in the cleft of a rock panicked, and God's like, I love you, I love you, it's compassion, and gone. Moses is like, that was the scariest thing that ever happened in my life. But he told me he loves me. Thank goodness. That's the right picture of God. And we can't stand that picture today. We fight it tooth and nail. You want to know how I know? How many of our modern songs do we write that even sound like the Psalms of the Old Testament? How many songs have you downloaded recently that talk about the righteousness and wrath and justice of God that's coming? That you long for because you know people who have been killed for their faith. You know people that are being persecuted and slaughtered. Because the people that you've supported, you've watched them die of disease and horrible things like we watched one of the children we sponsored years ago pass away. Lord, you know our hearts and we need to know our hearts and we need to know his heart. And they sang, look at what they said, they sang the song of God's servant Moses. That's the song of the law. That's justice. They sang about all the law and all the righteousness and everything else, and the song of the Lamb. That's the grace. The Lamb that was slain for the law you just sang about. Guys, I'm not trying to give scare tactics. I'm not trying to say turn or burn. But why does it offend us when people do? Why are we so offended? Why is it the greatest offense in our culture today is being legalistic? Do you know the definition of legalism is that you can save yourself by doing works? That's the real definition of legalism. Or you can make God happier with you than the next guy and get in better with God than the next guy by doing a bunch of good works. That's the definition of legalism. It is not being righteous and following God's law and loving him. That is not the definition of legalism. That's the definition of obedience. And we keep trying to, to ride this line that is really wicked if we're not careful. It's not wrong to call people to obedience, to hold them accountable to obedience. Again, you're going to call 911 when you see someone not being obedient to respect the humanity of another human being. And you're not going to have a single problem with that. And you're not going to feel guilty if that police officer shoots that person. You might deal with it a little bit, but at the end of the day, you're going to say, I don't know what else to do. That person was being hurt or murdered or raped or whatever, and I had to make a call, and so I did. And you won't struggle with it. Or if you do, it'll be very little. But they sang. Is it right to sing about this kind of stuff? They are. 
going on. It says this. Here's the song. You ready for the song? Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? Because you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. There's a lot of you and your in there and not much me or mine in that, in that song. You notice that? Not a bunch of me and mine, it's, it's a lot of you and your. It's focused one direction. When was the last time you were just awe-inspired by the works of God that he's already done, not what you want him to do so you can be awe-inspired? When was the last time you just read the word and you were just in awe of how incredible God was? And you were just in awe of like how he's worked and how he's preserved humanity when we all deserve destruction. When was the last time you were just in awe of all of his works? When you just looked around and you're just in awe and looked at creation and were like, wow. Most of us are more in awe over our sports teams than we are of God. We will re-watch a play 10 times. Go back and, wow, look at that. That's amazing. If somebody preached the same sermon two weeks in a row, you're like, that was boring. Your team's playing it again next week. You're going to watch them again. They're going to pretty much run the same plays. They don't like to have a new playbook. They really are. He goes on. And he says, who will not fear and glorify you? Both fear and glorify. That means fear, wrath, oh my goodness, and glorify as in, I'm done, I repent, you're God. And then he says, you're alone holy. Nothing else is going to fulfill me. Nothing is going to make me complete except you. That's what holiness means. Nothing else is going to complete the mess we're in except you and your holiness. And then he says, your righteous acts have been revealed. Everything you've ever done is right. That's what this song says. Anything you've ever done is right. It doesn't matter if I understand why. It, doesn't, it does not matter. It was right because you did it. That's a hard thing, especially when you read the rest of this book. Second Peter, we're going to be looking at Second Peter 3, so you can keep your tab there or something there as we look through this. Second Peter 3, second, uh, Peter is writing his second letter. This is what he says. Dear friends, now this is the second letter I have written to you. I love that, right? It's like a little reminder. Like, hey, I'm repeating myself. <laughs> I wrote you one letter, didn't seem to take, so I'm writing you another one. <laughs> I'm writing you a second letter. God's written lots of letters. That's why we have a big Bible, because we won't listen. And he says, in both letters, in both letters, here was my purpose in writing, to develop a genuine understanding, understanding of what? Who God is, what the world's about, what we can expect with a reminder. So I want you to, I want you to have a general understanding of what all this is about, and then I want you to be sure you remember. Because in the Old Testament, over and over again, God said, my people forget, and the Old Testament is remember, 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 remember. And then he says, so that you can remember the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. 
If you want genuine understanding and you want good reminders in your life instead of all the baggage reminders that you have in your life, all the reminders of the mess that we're in from the news and everything else, then you're going to have to fill your thoughts with the prophets, with the Lord Jesus' words, and with the words of the apostles. That's the whole Bible. Peter just said, here it is. You want a different way to think? You don't want to be scared by the wrath of God? You want to know how to repent? You want to know what's right and not be so caught in all this? Then here it is. I lay it out for you. And then he says, first, be aware of this. First thing I want you to be aware of when you start this process of going down this road of understanding the full picture of all of this, be aware scoffers will come in the last days to scoff. Ah, that's not what God really meant. He meant this. He did, he's not really going to have wrath. That's, just, that's, that's something else. That's just going to be the devil and his demons. He's not going to hurt any people. Living according to their own desires. You know, it's amazing to me. Our culture is completely built on giving people their desires. That's the point of our culture. We're going to go vote based on who's going to give us our desires. If we had a candidate that actually got up and said, hey, I think God needs to have a little wrath on us, would you vote for me? I'm going to make some decisions that really make it hard for us, and we're going to pay for the stupid we've done, and we're all going to pay together because we're that silly and unrighteous. And you know, sin has cursed three generations and blessings for our thousands. So for the next three generations, it's going to really stink for all of you, but man, we're going to be in a great country on that fourth generation. It's going to be awesome. That guy will never get elected. Not in our culture. He goes and he says, they're going to scoff, they're going to live, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Ah, geez, don't worry about everything else. Just make our nation great again. Build it back better. That's, that's the purpose. That's what we got to do. I thought we were shooting for something bigger than this nation. I, I thought as believers we were shooting for Jesus to come back. And when he comes back, there's not any more nations. Just him. And he's a king. <laughs> there's no other king. He goes on and he says, look at this. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they have since the beginning of creation. These people are going to be, you just got to do what's practical. Just got to do what's pragmatic. You know, things just keep going. They just keep going. Don't be too radical. Don't be too crazy. Just, just get in the flow of things. Just stay with the flow. Get in the flow with everybody else, right? Just things keep, wheels keep turning. Best you can hope for, you know, get, get some kids, get some grandkids, get some retirement. Just, just let those wheels keep turning. That's a, just every generation, that's what we're trying to do. You realize the concept of retirement is only like 100 years old? Literally. The modern concept of retirement isn't barely one generation old. Most people retired when they died. Like literally, they were out working in the field and fell down dead, and they're like, we've got to bury grandpa. Somebody's got to plow the field. Like that's how it went down. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be able to step aside and, and that there's different things for us to do as we age and that the younger take care of the older and the older, you know, help the younger understand. That's the way it's supposed to work. But this whole idea that I'm going to retire and get what I want and finally not have to, I'm going to retire early, like we, we think that is the best thing ever. If I can retire at 50 and just enjoy my life, I like won the lottery and I figured life out. Forget the whole work six days and rest one. Now, 
Can some people not work like they used to work? Absolutely. But most of the time, those people want to work. And God has humbled them, and they can't. And if you said, hey, here's your health back, they would go back to work. They would. They'd, they'd be right back there building houses again. They'd be right back there in the office. Like, I'm healthy again. I want to go serve people. I want to help people. I want to make Christ known. But they can't. And they're broken over it. And they find other ways to serve. It's the beauty of how God makes all of this work. He goes on. He says, after this, I looked in heaven's sanctuary, in the heavenly sanctuary. The tabernacle of the testimony was open. Out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues dressed in clean, bright linen with gold sashes wrapped around their chest. Every time I read this, I think of like a beauty pageant. You know what I mean? Where they're all coming out and the sashes are on. Like Colorado. No, I'm just kidding. Like, it's, I do. I read this. I'm like, that's hilarious. Right? And then it goes on. It says, one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven gold bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. This is it. They've gone into the Holy of Holies, they've gone into the holiest place, and they've they've brought out all the wrath that's left. So that, you ready for this? The sanctuary will forever be open, which we'll see later in the end of the book of Revelation. That there's no longer any barrier, because everything's been paid for. And don't you long for that? Don't you long for the barrier of your sin to be out of the way so you can be completely and fully intimate with God and never fear his wrath again and know that you are completely walking with him? So these angels go in. By the way, there's a heavenly tabernacle and sanctuary. That's why when Moses built the tabernacle and Solomon built the temple, God was very specific on how it had to be designed and he was very specific on how the rules had to be followed when they built it because it was a picture of the heavenly sanctuary. It was a picture of things to come. So he writes all this out. Now, if you pause for a second here, here's something you got to remember. We've already been through a lot of wrath. Much of the world's population, an overwhelming majority of the world's population is dead by this point because of the seals that were broken and the trumpets that were blown. And that's not enough, God? That's not enough? You got to have more blood, more wrath. Man, I don't know if I can believe in this God. This isn't the God I'm looking for. I'm looking for a God that will take it easy on people. Take it easy on me. God's like, I don't take it easy on any sin, regardless of what it is. If you've broken one, you've broken them all, he says. He goes on and he says this, Second Peter, Peter says, where's the promise of his coming? And then he says, dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, right? And a thousand years is like one day. The Lord does not delay in his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you. Why is he patient? Why has his full wrath not being poured out all the time on us? Here it is. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. See, the purpose of God's wrath is because There's no other way for God to get your attention. When things are going well, you just think you're doing the right thing and you keep doing it. When things go badly, you start crying out to God real fast. You start putting the world in perspective and saying, what do I really hope in? What do I really believe when things aren't going well? And see, so God is pouring this out. Why has God poured out 
seven seals or open seven seals and seven trumpets because he is trying to show us, look, I am doing everything I can to get people to repent. Everything. I have poured out everything I can both in my love and my mercy and now in my wrath and people still won't repent. You know, and much of the wrath of God is already baked in too in science and spirituality. You have, we have a monkeypox ec- epidemic, right? Pandemic that's starting to spread. Do you realize if you don't have sex with people, you probably won't get monkeypox? Very unlikely you'll get monkeypox unless you have sex with someone else who's not your spouse, who isn't having sex with someone else and gave it to you. Do you realize that many of the diseases in our world could just be stopped by us not having sex with people that aren't, we're not married to and being, having sex with one person for the rest of our lives? And that would stop a lot of things. It also stop a lot of wars. Domestic violence would go way down. Because when you sleep with people's wives, they get really mad at you. And they show up at your house and they beat you and they shoot you. Like much of God's wrath is just baked into his laws. Like if you don't treat the environment properly and you just do what you want with it and, you know, guess what? It's going to come back on you. Sorry, it will. So, so you got to be careful. Now, are we going to save the earth? No, nope, we're not. But should we take care of it? We should try. Like, we should be wise. Are we supposed to fill it and subdue it? Yes, we're supposed to fill and subdue the earth. But do it according to God's ways, not our own, not how we want. And whenever we go against God's law, wrath is just there. We don't even have to ask God to make wrath happen. It just happens. But this is specific. God is actually pouring it out to make it clear who he is. Then the sanctuary is filled with smoke from God's glory and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. We don't know how long this is going to take. Scripture doesn't say it's going to take seven days or seven minutes or seven months or seven years. It doesn't say. Day is like a thousand years, thousand years is like a day to the Lord. Then he goes on and he says, Then I heard a loud voice from the sanctuary saying to the seven angels, Go. Remember, Jesus called you and I to go and make disciples of all nations until I come back. These angels are being sent out and saying, go, because I'm done making disciples of all nations and I'm coming back. This is a different go. And he says, go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. There's a loud voice that declares this. This is what heaven has been waiting for. Heaven has been waiting for the restoration. You know, we just sang this morning as we were singing the song, like a like a bride waiting for her groom. We'll be at church ready for you. What if that means you have to wait for your bride and you don't get her till the day you're dead? Would you still wait? Because that's what we're going to have when we're not going to get Jesus till we're dead. Fully. We're kind of betrothed to Jesus right now. (laughs) We're not fully married yet. And betrothal was a serious thing in the Old Testament and in the Bible. It required a certificate of divorce for you to end a betrothal. (laughs) It was a serious matter when you give your vows and your yes and your yes, but not fully yet. 
And most of us are running around not thinking through the fact that we can celebrate and encourage these things. Romans 3 says this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So his wrath is going to go out. They are justified freely. How? How are we justified before God when his wrath is being poured out by his grace? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as a propitiation through faith in his blood. Propitiation means the substitute, the mercy seat, the the day of atonement, the sacrifice. What we deserve through faith in his blood to demonstrate his righteousness, not our righteousness, not how we can make a deal with God, but that Jesus was right to do this. He was right to die on the cross. He was right to call us sinners. He was right to say, you need me and there's no other way. Because in his restraint, God passed over sins previously committed. In his restraint, it's like God had full right to just pour his wrath on you at any moment and any time. And he's restraining himself. And the reason God's wrath is restrained on you is because Jesus is standing before God the Father's wrath and saying, not yet. And then it says, God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. So you're not righteous by all the works you do. You're not going to be stand before God. You're righteous because of what Jesus did. A lot of people want to say, well, this is sounding, you know, are you a grace plus works person? You know, you believe, yeah, you're saved by grace, but you've got to do these things. Or maybe you're a, a grace minus works person. Like, like, you've got God's grace, but if you sin, that's a minus, and so you've got to do something to make up for it. It's grace equals works. And by the way, the coefficients matter. Pluses, minuses, equals. In math, they're really important. You put the wrong symbol, you get the wrong answer. And it could just be a little, you put the parenthesis in the wrong spot. You move the parenthesis one number over and your answer's all messed up. Just one little, oops, my pin slipped. Ah, sorry, wrong answer, you fail. The rest of the problem's wrong. It's grace equals works. When you have grace, when you understand the justice and wrath of God, when you repent and you understand that God is right, then it motivates you to say, if you're right, then I want to know what's right. I just want to do what's right. And when I figure out I've done wrong, I go back to repentance because I know I'm not under your wrath because of what Jesus did, and so I want to do what's right. And you keep that process going. The wrath gets set aside, and you're in the repentance right equation the rest of your life. People who don't know Christ are on the wrath side. There's no other way for them to figure out what's right. They just have the wrath of God. Romans goes on to say this in chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What you've earned because of your sin and because of the sin of the, what we've earned, what we've been stained with and polluted with, we deserve death. But the gift of God is eternal life. In who? In the Messiah, who is Yahweh who saves, who is, who is the King, Lord, Yahweh of the universe. You can't give a name more qualifying than Messiah, King, who is Yahweh who saves, who is our Messiah, Yahweh, who is the King. Pretty much sums it up. Do you believe that? Do you believe he's the King? Do you believe these things about him? Then it goes on. It says, the first went and poured out his bowl on the earth. 
And severely painful sores broke out on all the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The people that decided to be pragmatic and just try to survive and get through it and compromise, he says, they're going to be in severe pain. Now, does it always mean if you have boils that you're not right with God? Nope, Job had boils. And he was perfectly right with God. God said, there's no one more righteous than my servant Job. Why don't you test him? Sometimes you got boils because God just wants to show how awesome you are at repenting and how awesome you are at declaring him in the midst of a mess. He's like, test him, test her, because man, they'll just keep singing my song. They'll keep crying out to me because they know me. They know how our family works. They'll keep declaring it. But sometimes you got boils because you refuse. The second poured out his bowl onto the sea. It turned blood like the dead man, like a dead man's. And all of life in the sea died. All of life in the sea died. Do you know how stinky and disastrous that would be? We're talking mass starvation. We're talking, I mean, you talk about ruin the beaches. Nobody's going to the beach here. This is awful. By the way, these plagues that God is laying out, they've already happened before. He, most of these plagues are repeats from the Old Testament, specifically when they were in Egypt. And he was trying to get Pharaoh's attention, and Pharaoh wouldn't soften his heart. So God pours out boils. That doesn't worry. He, he pours out the sea. Next, the third poured out his bowl onto the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. I heard the angel of the waters say, Look at what the angel says. You are righteous who is and who was the Holy One for you have decided these things. They're pouring out this wrath and in the midst of the third big wrath coming, the angel pauses and he's like, oh, you're so awesome. I got to sing right now. I got to tell you how great you are and how wonderful. Do we even have a place for this in Christianity today? Or do we look and go, oh, I could just, I could never say that God... I don't know if I could ever say, God, this is good, that this is happening. Really? You don't think all of Europe celebrated when Hitler was finally defeated? You don't think there are parties and ticker tape parades in all the streets when that evil man was gone? And the Germans were finally freed from his evil grip? So we can celebrate that, but then... Well, that's just for Hitler because he was a really bad person. We're not really bad. Any of us are capable of such wicked without the grace of God. And you think to yourself, wow, that this angel was saying, you're the one, God, who's decided these things. You've laid all this out. So they pour out a third plague. The fourth poured out his bull on the sun. He was given the power to burn people with fire and people were burned by the intense heat. So you've got boils, you've got waters, you've got all this, you've got the intense heat that's coming. All these terrible things are happening, and now the sun shoots out a plasma flare, right, a solar flare. It shoot, by the way, these happen all the time. Science says that the sun shoots stuff at us all the time. Someday it's going to shoot us and probably destroy all of our computers and everything. If it shoots a big enough flare, it'll flip the magnetic pole and actually move the mag. I mean, it's going to do weird stuff. The sun's very powerful. All an angel has to do is like go down and pour something on it, and a little reaction happens, and whoosh, done. We watch it happen every day. I don't know if angels are up there pouring stuff on there. I don't know. It happens. Maybe this is the explanation. 
All of this has happened. Seven seals, seven trumpets. The last bowls are being pulled out. God sent two witnesses. They slaughtered the witnesses. God has done everything he can. Now look at the response of knowing that the last wrath is going to come. There's no turning back. This is awful. People are being burned by the sun. Boils, mess. So they blasphemed the name of God and had the power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. How dare you, God? Who do you think you are to send natural disasters? How dare you think you are to take my child, to take my daughter, take my son, take my wife? Who do you think you are, God? You created this world. Who do you think you are? You've never said that? You've never blasphemed God like that? I have. And I have to stop. I have to repent. I have to say, God, you're right. I'm wrong. The fact that any of us are alive is a miracle. None of us deserve life at all. So I'm going to praise you. I'm going to sing a song. And that's why we love the Psalms. Because most of the time, that's what people were in the midst of. Horrible, awful, terrible things they couldn't understand. And they said, and I'm going to say God's right. And I'm going to declare his praise and tell people that he's right to do these things even when I don't like them. You see it over and over again in Scripture. People embracing the reality of the mess they're in and the pain and the suffering and saying, but God. And that's why our faith is different. Because we're not looking to solve everything here and now. We embrace it. And the people that won't embrace it, they're going to be separated from God for eternity. He goes on and says this, Second Peter, in that passage, he goes on to say, they're going to willfully ignore this, the scoffers. Long ago, the heavens and the earth were brought about by water and through water by the word of God. Through these waters, the, wor- the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. That's what we're seeing happen in Revelation. The world is going to be destroyed by fire. That's, these humans are being burnt by fire, the fire sun shooting stuff to burn humans. By the way, you can burn people without like the kind of fire we see. It's radiation. There's lots of radiation across the universe, all over the place, that can fry us in an instant. You know all God has to do to really make it bad for us? He just has to remove the covering of the atmosphere away from the earth for a minute, and we're toast. That's how frail we are. We have a thin covering that covers us that keeps the wrath of space and the sun and the cosmos from destroying us on earth. Wow, what's that a picture of? The idea that here we are on earth with these people and there's this great, massive, unbelievable cosmos that's bigger than anything and there's this thing covering us and keeping us from being destroyed. Sound familiar? It's called the gospel. Jesus is our covering. But someday that covering is going to be lifted. Peter says it's going to be destroyed. There's a lot of arguments today theologically against this, by the way. There's a whole group of new theology that believe that the earth isn't going to be destroyed. It's just going to be redeemed. That God's just going to make things perfect. We're going to see in a minute, that's not what Revelation says. The fifth poured out his bull on the throne of 
the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues because of their pain. I mean, it's getting bad. So now they pour out another plague. Now that they're gnawing their own tongues and they've watched their beast, their king, fall, what do you think their response is going to be? And blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pain and their sores, yet they did not repent of their actions. Again, God, you don't have the right to do this. I blaspheme you. How dare you touch me? How dare you do this to me? How dare you? How dare you? How dare you? Versus the ones that are under the altar that we read about at the fifth seal that was poured out earlier, who are the saints that were slaughtered, who say, here we are, we paid the price, we embraced the reality of the wrath of the world so that we could have the blessing of our God. When are you coming back? He goes on and says, the sixth poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. So not only will they not repent, not only will they blaspheme God, they are actually going to rally the troops to do everything they can to tell God to shove it. I'll show you, God. You ever done that in your heart? How dare you, God? I'll show you. I'll go out and do this. I'll do that. I'll say this. I'll do. There. Take that. This just exposes our hearts. Only this is on a whole nother level because no one's repenting. You see no repentance. Once these start getting poured out, there's not another person who repents all the way to the end of the book. It's just people dying. And then he says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, and from the mouth of the false prophet. Good luck figuring out what that means. Frogs, and there you go. For they are spirits of demons performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle against the great day of God. So these guys are going to go out. They're going to perform miracles and signs to get people to buy in on why they're right and God's wrong. Again, it's pragmatism. Yeah, you don't want a God of wrath. He shouldn't tell you to repent. We can bless you. You come with us. You be on our team. We're winners. We can take it to the, we can beat them. Because we're the greatest. Be careful. And then it says, as we go on, look, I'm coming like a thief. The one who is alert and remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame is blessed. So they assembled them at the place called, in Hebrew, Armageddon. Jesus says, I'm coming like a thief. You're not going to know when. Just I'm there. I had a dream last night about somebody robbing my shed. I don't know why. I woke up like 4.30 and like, did somebody rob my shed? Should I go check? It was one of those where you're like, I did leave it unlocked. And then I started thinking about my dream and I'm like, oh no, my shed, we lived out in the country and my shed was off by itself. I live in the suburbs and it's on the side of my house. That was a dream. And so I went back to sleep. But I mean, I walked in my shed, everything was gone. I'm like, what? What happened? Dang, I knew I should have locked the door. Like, he's going to come like a thief. You know, wait. But for those of us who are ready, we'll be clothed. So when he comes like a th- we're ready to go. We're ready to take care of it. You know, there's nothing more offensive in our culture today than to tell people to clothe themselves. Ask a teacher at a high school right now a male teacher at a high school right now. How difficult it is to have a conversation about clothing. 
God says, those who clothe themselves are blessed. Those who want to run around naked, your shame is going to be exposed. You think you're free and naked to do whatever you want? You're going to be ashamed someday. It's going to be fully exposed. But if you'll clothe yourself with my righteousness, take on Christ, and understand what that means, then you won't be afraid when the thief comes. It says there's going to be a war. In 2 Peter, it says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn. Remember, that angel just shouted. There's a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved. The sun's burning stuff up. He says the elements will be dissolved. What are elements? Helium, hydrogen. <laughs> that doesn't sound like an earth that's going to be like surviving a lot. It sounds like God's going to like break it down to its elements and then rebuild it back. And then it says, and the earth and the works will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be destroyed this way, do you believe they're going to be destroyed? If you believe in the wrath of God, it's clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait and earnestly desire the coming of the day of the Lord. But based on his promise, we wait for the new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. In other words, we're not waiting for wrath. We recognize wrath is the only pathway to repentance, which is the only pathway to righteousness. So I don't want the wrath, but I know I got to go through the wrath if we're going to get a new heaven and a new way of life. That's the Christian message. So, so I, it's not like I'm celebrating, go get them. I'm just like, I just celebrate God as being proven right. And there's no other way he can prove himself right than this. Verse 17, then the seventh poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the sanctuary from the throne saying, it is done. All the wrath has been poured out. It's done. There were flashes of lightning and rumbles of thunder and a severe earthquake occurred like none other since man had been on the earth. So great was the quake, the great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered in God's presence. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. Every island fled and the mountains disappeared. Enormous hailstones each weighing about 100 pounds, fell from the sky on people. That's a lot of wrath. God's pouring things out a little bit at a time, and when the angel says it's finished, all the covering's gone. There's nothing left. In Matthew, we get a picture of this. Remember this imagery. The quake, the flashes, because read Matthew, it says, from noon until the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. Remember the bowl that was poured out? The darkness. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried with a loud voice, the shout of the angel. The judgment's going to come with a loud voice. And when he cried out, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know what Jesus is quoting there? Write it down in your Bible. Psalm 22. You know what Psalm 22 is called? Psalm 22 is called the suffering to praise psalm. It starts out with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it ends with, I know you're God and I know you'll save me. Jesus on the cross 
in the midst of experiencing wrath and having to repent of nothing and struggling with the righteousness of the Godhead is singing songs to his Father in heaven. The songs of the family he was taught to sing. Songs that say, save us. Psalms that say, suffering is a part of it. And then he says, when some of those standing there heard this, they heard him say this and they could understand the psalm he was quoting, which talks about God returning to make things right, they said he's calling for Elijah to come back. Elijah went on fire and Elijah's going to bring fire back and Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge filled with sour wine and fixed it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. But the rest of them said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. They know that there's been a loud shout. This is a big moment. He just pulled himself up on the cross because you can't breathe on a cross. You die of suffocation. So the only way you can breathe when you're hanging on a cross is you pick yourself up and take a breath and you fall back down. So to pick yourself up and say something, that's a lot of work when you got nails through your hands and through your feet. I don't know about you, but I don't think I want to be picking myself up on nails and singing. And yet that's what our God was doing. Then he says, Jesus shouted again. He shouts again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Can you imagine that moment where they're looking to see, is Elijah going to come? What's going to happen? He's quoting... Oh, this is scary. It's gotten all dark. The sun darkened out, and everybody's like, okay, this is weird. This has never happened at a crucifixion before. Uh, There's some really weird stuff going on here. Uh, I don't know what's going on. I mean, God's getting their attention a little bit here, right? I mean, it's, it's some scary, weird stuff. He's pulling himself up. Everybody else is just trying to die, and Jesus is like, ah, I'm yelling songs and singing. And like, what is this? This is the weirdest. I mean, the Romans that were there had to be freaked out, all of it. And so they're waiting He shouts again, and they're thinking, oh, no, this is it. And then it says, suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked, and the rocks were split. This is just a small piece of the wrath of God. We just read about when the full rocks get split, and the full earthquake comes, and the fullness. This is God just pouring out a little bit of wrath on his son so that you and I can be saved. Someday, if you reject this wrath that was poured out on the son, all that's left for you is all the wrath of God. Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, and John, it says this, after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished or everything was finished, which is what we just read in Revelation, look at this, that the scripture might be fulfilled. In other words, it's the fulfillment of the scripture that God is now paying the price. Before we had symbols of lambs and other things that we were to practice trusting that someday God would send a perfect lamb. Someday God would send a perfect sacrifice. Someday God would not use the blood of animals, but somehow would save us. And these animals don't save us, but God, we, we sacrifice them to remind ourselves that someday you're going to come save us. It's the same reason we follow rules today. It's not to get something or to get in good with God. It's because we recognize who he is, what he's already done, and what he's going to do. That's the whole Old Testament law. He says this, he says, I am thirsty. You'd be thirsty too if you'd been 
Almost every drop of blood had been ripped out of you by the ripping the flesh off of your back and the crown of thorns on your head for doing nothing wrong other than saying God is God. That's all Jesus said. God is God and I'm standing before you. He said nothing more. We treat crazy people downtown Bloomington who say they're God better than we treated Jesus who's the God of the universe. We aren't crucifying them and putting them up on crosses in seminary swear and laughing at them and mocking them. He says, I'm thirsty, and a jar full of sour wine was sitting there. This is what we read before. They fixed a sponge of sour wine and hyssop, held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he raised himself up and with a loud shout said, it is finished. The same thing we read in Revelation. This section is finished, but there's going to be a final finish that comes. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Will you give yours up? We're reading in Revelation where people will not give up. They won't give up. They won't give their will up. So what was the response to those who saw the darkness and Jesus crying out and the earthquake that happens in Jerusalem and the temple that's split and the curtain split and, I mean, all this craziness. What was the response Look at this. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they were terrified. The wrath hit them and said, this man really was God's son. They repented. That is the proper response to the reality of the wrath of God. It's repentance. It's saying, obviously, this man was right. This was what we did was wrong. That he had to be the Son of God for this. Nothing. These guys have been crucifying people their whole lives as soldiers. They have never seen anything like this. And don't you think that they weren't looking and thinking about him three days later when he came back to life? <laughs> I always wonder if in Acts, the centurion that Peter goes to eat at his house is this centurion. Who's commanding armies and watched all of this happen and calls Peter and says, come and eat. I, I, I don't know what to do with what I've seen and what I... I understand the wrath I deserve. You want to know why? As Jesus told another Roman soldier, he told him, I understand that I am a man under authority, and I understand that you're a man under authority and above authority. What was the response at the end of chapter 16 of all the plagues, all the seals, all the trumpets, all the bowls poured out of the people that are in this final stage? And they blasphemy God for the plague of hail because that plague was extremely severe. They can do nothing but blasphemy God every time he does what's right. And some Roman centurions who have been doing nothing but what is wrong, fighting for an empire that was wicked, fighting and crucifying people, sometimes innocently, like, they repented. 
And these people won't have anything to do with it. Let me ask you this morning. Do you believe God's right? Is he right? Is he righteous? Do you believe that he's right and so he has the right to wrath? We actually need wrath because we don't change any other way. Now, does that mean we need to just be all about wrath? Hear me when I say this. No, we just read about Jesus, the story of crucifixion, and Peter saying, it's all about Jesus. We read Romans where Paul's like, this Jesus is the one that saves us. No, it's about grace. But to fully understand grace, you have to understand wrath. They're together on top of each other. And God just wants you to realize that you don't have to be in the wrath camp. All it takes to get out of the wrath camp is to say, you're the son of God, I repent. I go the other way. You're out of the wrath camp. Now you're in the right and repentance camp. The wrath has been taken away from you because it's been put on Jesus. Now what's your response to that? It's to get in the right and repentance camp. God, I know you're right. Tell me what's right. I'll tell other people what's right. I I won't be afraid of your wrath and telling people the reality and tell them of your love and your compassion because when you passed by in your glory and your wrath before Moses, you said, I am loving and gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in faithful love. And so I've got that message to tell people that when they're feeling the wrath of God, when they're feeling like, oh my goodness, I've got the message to tell them they can be saved. But I don't have a message that says, yeah, you don't deserve that wrath. That's off limits because we all deserve it. But there's someone who will take it for you. And then if we understand that, you ready for this? I willingly don't go the way I want to go, living by my desires of my flesh. I willingly live according to Christ because I recognize that I'm repeating the pattern. I'm giving myself to be the wrath for others so that they might repent and they might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel message. It's a hard message. And when you come down to the end of the book, this is where we are. And I don't know where we are in the book of Revelation right now. I have no idea. Day is like a thousand years, thousand years like a day. Good luck figuring it out. But I know this. We have a message to tell the world. And it's a full message of the full character of God because we recognize the blessing of the book of Revelation and the blessing of the rest of his word. Is there anything you need to repent of today? I'm not talking about the one time when you accepted Christ and you were born again and now you're his child. And maybe you have it. Maybe you need to make that decision because you never have. Make it. Don't play around. But maybe... You've gone back and you keep going back to sin. And God says, hey, I just want you to recognize what you're doing is wrong. What I want is right. And I want you to turn from the way you're going and turn to me. It's okay. And he will be what? Loving and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in faithful love. Not because of you, but because of who he is. That's the gospel message. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I don't know where people are this morning. This is a hard thing. We're watching the last things be poured out in chapters 15 and 16. There's still a battle coming. There's still things that are going to come. But 
Man, the total rejection of you over and over and over again to show us that you have every right to come back because there's no one left who's going to turn to you. Lord, I thank you that we're not there today. I thank you that even this week, here in this city, there are going to be people who turn to you. They're going to repent. I thank you that last week, I know of some people that came to know you and repented and decided to turn from the way they were going and turn towards you. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to use us in that. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be afraid of this message. We wouldn't be afraid of the reality of the full picture of the word of God and the full truth. That we would be terrified for our friends and neighbors and people and we give them the reality of your love and compassion that they don't need to be terrified. And for those that aren't terrified, I pray that we would show them they need to be. There is a God, you are real, you are kind, and you are just. And so Lord, if anyone here has not made the decision to fully surrender to you, I pray today would be the day. They would say, you know what? You're right, God, and I repent. And I turn to you, and no longer will your wrath be on them because you seal them for heaven. And you will bring the grace and the works together in their life to produce fruit. And we're thankful for that. And for those of us who do know you, if we've gotten off track, if there's things that we're just mad about because you haven't given us and we're just bitter, Lord, I pray that we would repent. And we'd say, you know what, God? You are right. And your ways are right. And I trust you. And we'd live the next day and the next day and the next day singing your glory, singing your praise, singing the reality of our world unashamed. We pray.